Before we begin our new show, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting and working on Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands, which were stolen, and that sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to any First Nations people here and listening. We're striving to put First Nations voices at the center of our reporting and to prioritize their agency in any stories about their experiences. So, welcome to We're Any News. ANU's oldest news team brings you our best news stories of the past week and brings you up to date on what's happening on campus. So, I'm Alexander, the news editor, and here today we've got Radar. Hi, guys. And we've got Rosie as well, one of our senior reporters. Hi. They're both looking at me sheepishly as they say hello. Um, so, a bit of a rainy day, and um, I guess we've just had our heat wave entering March. Um, we will be talking about the climate a little bit later on, and the international panel on um, climate change. We'll be talking about their report. But first, we want to jump into the George Brandis FOI piece. So if people are unfamiliar with this one, what it is is um, an FOI was kind of released, which is what the ANU normally does. Um, and it talked all about Brandis's um, appointment sorry, as a professor in practice at the ANU. Um, so Brandis served as a liberal senator for Queensland until 2018. Um, very senior person, all things considered, was a cabinet minister for Abbott and Turnbull, attorney general from 2013 to 17, and most recently the high commissioner to the United Kingdom. Um, pretty much what the email chain reveals is that the appointment was driven personally by Brian Schmidt, which is a bit, I would say, with limited knowledge of how the ANU employs people, it is a bit controversial considering his political nature. Um, so the email chain begins with Schmidt proposing the hire to other senior ANU staff, um, and he also sold it very interestingly as helping ANU better understand and engage the political process and to help the university raise money through philanthropy. There wasn't the focus on um, effectively kind of here's how his expertise helps students, which is what we then got a lot from media spokespeople. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I guess um, you've summarised basically what the FOIs show, but you talked about how... Brandis's appointment doesn't really do much for students. And I guess the question is, like, how controversial is the appointment? It's, like, an interesting question. Um, I, I personally find it a pretty controversial idea that we're still employing, like, ex-government ministers. Um, I think it's, it's certainly very interesting for professors, right? Because some of these people, like, we have these professors that are here for... 10 years or 15 years and they have so much research and work behind them they have they do the, the the professorial gauntlet right they've got a phd a master's whatever and then to have someone who's elected who has some experience but is also kind of all about the political side of it come in it's, it's definitely an interesting decision i think the most most controversial point is that um the policy he was employed under is um called an identified position procedure which is typically reserved for people who are uh members of who are Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander or women. Um, as we point out in the article, Brandis is neither of those two things. Um, this already kind of like made its ANU confessions, which is like a high point of my news editor career. Um, but that is a bit kind of twisted and it's unclear exactly what happened there. Um, we, you know, came back to ANU Media and asked several times about this and they just said it was at the university's discretion, which is definitely interesting because to me it kind of looks like you've got this policy for evidently people who are negatively impacted by society's oppression, kind of get just immediately sidelined by a white male politician who gets brought in and kind of used under that policy. I think my next question, and you talked about um, how 
Brandis was appointed to engage with this idea of like philanthropic funding, right? What do you think that shows about the university's priorities? And like, is this quite telling that ANU needs more help to obtain funding? That's a good question. Rada, how does it make you feel that a lecturer gets appointed because of how well they can kind of raise donations rather than, than lecture? I don't like that at all. <laughs> Lectures shouldn't be like, I guess like lecturers, no, they should be, they should be skilled in how to teach and like in their own like job fields and like academically, not like if they can raise donations or not. Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree. I think the other thing, just from kind of someone who has unfortunately looked a lot into the ANU is, um, and you remember this, um, from the ANU report last year, one of their KPIs is influencing public dialogue and government dialogue in particular. And looking at this appointment, you know, he works a part-time week, very cushy. I think I remember seeing in the FOI that he ends his work day at 4.30 every day. <laughs> um, but you still get paid, you know, we don't know exactly how much he's being paid, but I can guarantee you from a, a professor, even on a part-time salary, it will still be quite something. Um, so I think what I'm getting at here is, is he being employed for the students or is he being employed um, to help the um, help ANU kind of understand how they can, inf in quotation marks, inform the dialogue of the government and kind of actually get a foot in the door in those back corridors, which is, it's a very odd, in my opinion, very odd goal for a university to have, um, especially considering you know, we had so many debates around COVID and that sort of lot of ANU professors feature on the news. But yeah, I think it is, it's, it's very questionable why exactly you want to employ Brandis, especially considering like we employ ex-civil servants who are, I think, much, they, they straddle that line between being professionals and possibly being a lecturer. But an ex-politician, you, you really do have to question their expertise. And a lot of times, I mean, like, a lot of the policies that Brandis personally oversaw, like ASIO raiding a lawyer's office, you've got to think, like, so you're going to get that person and then teach someone else about the rule of law and how the government achieves that. Like, come on. Or, you know, what was the quote we put in there? People have a right to be a bigot. Like, and, and yet, so, so, you know, the ANU does all this stuff around we don't tolerate or accept any form of racism or bigotry. We've got all these task force. We're going to put, like, $2 million into student safety and well-being. But you're, you, you can sit in a room with a lecturer who will defend to your face. Um, oh, what's he called? That shock jock. Who was Alan it? Jones? Yeah, Alan, no, um, no, Andrew Bolt. Andrew, Andrew Bolt. Who will defend Andrew Bolt to your face? And you've got to think, like, you know, just what? Um, so, yeah, I find it, I find it, like, just really odd. Um, that people would do it. Um, before I ask you the next question, another thought I have on that is, didn't Schmidt, like, exit the university with this, like, whole... I can't remember what newspaper was in, but this piece about how he, like, is strongly disagrees with federal um, education policy, how he's yeah. at odds with the government, how he doesn't want to work with the government and, like, <laughs> thinks things should be left to the university, and yet we have this, like, personal appointment that is all to do with... Engage like, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think it's one of those things that, like the stuff that goes on behind the scenes in the university, and this leads me to my next question, is like stuff that they obviously don't want you to know. And the way they've been marketing it publicly is so different from like how the process actually mm. um, came about. And on that, obviously this story was not something that we found out just because they knew published it. It was because of an FOI request or a freedom of information request. Um, and I guess my question is like, how often do we use those in where any stories and like what sort of information do they show? Good question. I think FOIs are really difficult because like every 
every office in the world has just like a massive amount of paper produced. And so relying on the idea of like you just FOI anything to do with Brandis's appointment, they'll just say there's too many documents. So I think what I'm getting at here is with our FOIs, we always have to be really, really specific. Um, we always have to be able to kind of, you almost have to know the document exists before you even FOI it, which seems to, in my mind, like really counterintuitive to the idea of an FOI in the first place. Um, on top of that, like if you get like a few words wrong, like I think from my experience, it's very legal. It's not in the sense of like, oh, you FOI'd this, here's a really similar thing. We'll give you that. It's like you FOI'd this, this specific thing we can't find. So that's it. Nothing for you. So a few of our pieces do get informed by FOIs. Obviously, this one was a big one. Um, I think the other two big ones that come to the top of my mind are the CAS piece we did a while back. Um, and on top of that, I would say the oh um, the one about Hotstar, where they <laughs> um, someone else FOI'd um, the ACT Health report on Hotstar. And like, so it got all the photos out of what Hotstar had looked like, which was like, like, you know, like a Horrifying. genuine, like an inch thick mold of batter and like just weird stuff underneath all their deep fryers. So F FOIs are useful. Um, and they are also like an increasing part of journalism because people just don't talk. But anyway, that's enough about Brandis. Um, we've got Rada with us because she wrote a really great piece about student activism, kind of where it's come from, um, what it's like now and where it might be going. So, um, Rada, do you want to just kind of, um, to jump right into it, like, what was your biggest takeaway from the article, from those interviews and from writing it? One of the biggest, like, takeaways I, like, I had was, like, how far we have come as, like, a student body and how we're still fighting for a lot of the things that students, like, before us were fighting for. So, for example, like, when I was writing the piece, I think the women's department was getting prepared for the, um, the International Women's Day protests which I thought was so, like, it says a lot because we the first protest we ever had that was about um, pro-abortion um, was um, in the 1990s, which is so crazy to me that, like, literally 30 years after we're still, like, protesting for the same things. But also, like, realising that things, like, especially, like, social change comes through with a lot of effort from activism and it doesn't like radically change or like things don't just change in one one fell swoop and I guess that was one of the biggest takeaways but also like speaking to a lot of the activists that was very nice they um they spoke very passionately and they yeah they were like that I feel like them talking to me was like a great addition to the piece. Um, what do you think you want readers to kind of take away from it you already touched a bit about like the importance of activism. I feel like if readers were encouraged to take part in protests a, a lot more. Um, so for some of the activists that I like spoke to, they weren't like a part of any organization, but they did say that they won't go to certain protests even if they believe in the motivation for that protest because they just they don't like the organization that like possibly organized it. And I didn't want to include that in the piece because I thought that would be a little bit mean. But I think um, it's important to go to protests because, as I said, like they do like create change they are the building blocks for change for social and like institutional change so like if you do believe in something it's like it's very helpful for like all of us if you like participate in a protest I guess like a lot of the times um especially today it's so easy to like 
express your political opinion on social media, which is where like online activism is so, is like so popular because it's so much more like accessible and like obviously like safety reasons. You're like a lot more anonymous online than you are in like in front of like parliament and protesting for something. But yeah, but I still think there's like a very like specific and unique um, specialty about going to like protests in person uh, like and like a lot of the time like a lot of the activists that I spoke to they talked about like some of the sensory effects of like going to protests it can be very empowering because like you're chanting together you're walking together and it can be like if it, it feels like you're like it's something bigger than life yeah so what was the most interesting thing you came across I know I read that Waroni is a publication were previously anti-abortion and that was quite um, surprising to me given the current state of the paper. Um, yeah, Waroni does have a past. I feel like for, <laughs> like, for so, like, when I was doing my research for a lot of the protests, like, against, like, course cuts or, like, like increasing student accommodation, we were very, like, Waroni was very much, like, for those protests, but things like, like, the anti-conspiracy conscription protests for Vietnam, we were very against those. Really? We wanted people wow. to go, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I did not realise um, that. That's yeah. interesting because university students weren't conscripted. I don't know, but there still was like a huge protest of like 800 people. Yeah. And and like someone in Waroni was like, yeah, I don't know why they're doing this. You're men, you have to go, blah, blah, blah. Cool. <laughs> Which might inform the anti-abortion stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in like 1998... Um, were only published because at that time there was a huge national debate going on about abortions and a lot of women were dying from like um like performing abortions by themselves and were only at that time published gra very graphic photos of aborted fetuses on the pages and the women's officer at the time I forgot I forget her second name but Kate um, the girl boss that she was, she um, staged the first like protest that was for um, abortion and she ripped out the pages. She and like the entire department stood outside the office and ripped out the like the pages of wow. photos. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. We knew we only had such a dark and troubled past. I know. This is why we archive our editions. Yeah. 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 <laughs> for some reason, between 2009 and 11, there's no pieces. I couldn't find anything. So I, I bet we're That's doing That's very bad interesting. But student, <laughs> student newspapers and student unions have like odd spells sometimes. I think just to like jump in on this, like Tony Abbott um, edited mm -hmm. Oni Spa for a bit, um, reportedly staged that election, but like that <laughs> you do, yeah, like like that it wasn't like a, a genuine, Legitimate, yeah. yeah. But you do have odd moments like that. That's very interesting. Um, I guess to, to get back a bit on track, um, speaking to like the young and upcoming like kind of activists and protest organizers, what do you think the future of activism is looking like? You already touched on like social media style activism. Where do you think it's all going to go? Mm, that's, see, the thing is, I feel like, so, okay, when I was doing my research, a very like strong quote that I came upon like was that as long as we have students, we will have student activism, which I think like speaks into like how integral student activism is to like, what like a life of a student looks like but at the same time I feel like you're in your 20s you have a lot lot less to like r like worry about but as you get older I don't know things might change students who like are activists like strong like activists now they might not continue on if they like go on to have families or whatever 
but yeah, um, I don't know. But like, yeah. So like in your 20s, you're f- wild and you're free and you can do like whatever you want. But um, yeah, as I said, like the online activism thing is a huge thing. And I definitely think that we're going to see a lot of it in the future. Um, activism is important. Like if you're going to be a politician, it's like I feel like in your personal history, you will have activism in like in like your life. And yeah, um, I can't really speak to like how the future will look like, but I do hope that we do have more like in-person activism because they can be very effective, as I've said. How did you find um, as well, did any of the people you interviewed speak a bit about the kind of relatively low turnout that we tend to get from ANU and ANU students? I'm just thinking of like, photos of UCID protests or Uni Melb or even QUT and they tend to get quite a big turnout. Did anyone kind of touch on that? Hmm. I think one of the biggest things is that like a lot of people don't feel safe to like go to protests. Like I can speak for myself. I don't particularly feel the safest when I go to protests just because I do have like a history of being an immigrant. I'm a PR now but still like I'm not fully citizen and I don't know. I feel like I don't have that many like protections as like someone who is like who is a citizen um, of the country. But also things like like for example, like uh, First Nations people won't go to protests because they have because there's like an infamous like relationship between um, police enforcement and like First Nations peoples. But also like I feel like there's a lot of photos taken at protests and mm. they get circulated quite a lot and. If you're not comfortable speaking about something with your like inner circle or like for example your fi- like your parents or your family and they happen to see a photo of you in like a protest that they as a family don't like stand for that could ruin relationships and I think that's why people don't want to go. But also I think because it's so much more accessible to do it online. Why yeah, sure? do you think it kind of just like yeah. you post something so you don't have to bother going job. anywhere? Yeah. yeah, wow. No. That's definitely interesting. It's a, it's a bit of an odd critique because I think it kind of comes from sometimes there's elements of the right that like tend to like make fun of people for like posting stuff on social media. But at the same time, there's a valid point of, you know, like you should probably turn up. It's not really enough to just like turn your socials off on Invasion Day. You should probably be there at the protests. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, thank you very much. Do you have any other kind of takeaways from the article? Anything else you wanted to share? Mm, not really. Um, um, I'll say thank you to all the people that let me interview them. It was really nice talking to people. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, have you, you've, you talked a bit about attending protests. Rosie, how do you find going to protests? Um, I went to the Invasion Day one. Well, I'm very far from the mic. I went to the Invasion Day one this year. I thought it was really well run. Um, I think that was like, yeah, I think protests aren't the most comfortable spaces for a lot of people, as you were saying. I think also like people um like it's physically quite demanding i know mm. Invasion Day was very hot so i think the resources that like anusa and other other organizations provided like a quiet space lots of water lots of food stuff like that really helps but yeah i i'm also lucky that like i i'm allowed to attend protests if i want to like i'm a citizen in this country i don't um feel any sort of like reservation about people in my life knowing that but yeah i've gone to a few i don't mind it the one thing I will say from when I've attended protests is a certain uh, political faction on campus which likes to sell its own mm. magazine at protests. And I think that's a really interesting argument about kind of the co-opting of protests. Um, 
So for people who haven't attended a protest before, you can often, at pretty much any protest that I've ever been to, you will find members of Socialist Alternative selling Red Flag, their their magazine. And I always find that a very, very interesting experience. Pardon, sorry? It's a bit odd. It's it's a very interesting experience. And I think there was a, it was um, Jay Ryan, the, the previous Anusa treasurer, who kind of really had a go at them one time for it because um, he had this point which like, something like Red Flag in particular, no one knows the funding model of, no one knows mm. if there's someone at the back of it who actually makes money. And it did feel, he argued it felt like profiteering off someone's protest and, and, and by extension, the injustice that other people experience. I would say that at the Invasion Day protest this year, I was there a bit early. My housemate was doing the Legal Observer Program, which I think you mentioned in your article, but they were coming around to people and like being like, have you considered socialist politics and stuff? And I felt to me... Um, like it wasn't really the space to be doing that when the issue was not theirs, right? The issue yeah, was not one that's, primarily of mm. capitalism but of systematic racism in this country. And it's like I wouldn't imagine that the representation of um, First Nations people in socialist alternative was like do you know what I mean? It it's like not, really wasn't it's a it wasn't it's, it's definitely not a high <laughs> representational proportion, um, I can guarantee you. So it felt a bit, yeah, like co-opting not only off of struggle, but like off of someone else's struggle. And it also made me quite uncomfortable to be there, right? Because I was like, no, I don't really want to engage with socialist politics today. Like, that's not why I'm here. It also, it, it goes back to a point that I think you made in the article about how protests are built off broad coalitions. Um, and I feel like trying to insist that everyone else at a protest kind of like at least think or talk to you about um, their politics kind of dismantles that a bit because it's about bringing a whole group of people together mm -hmm. behind a cause and often disparate, right? I think the, the real success of protests is when you're reaching to people who actually aren't affected by it, um, which is kind of the unfortunate reality of like a democracy that it's, it's minorities who have to protest. And so it's other majorities, other majorities who then get to make the choice to turn up. And I feel that like once you're building that kind of broad coalition, like to then come along and insist that everyone talk about socialism is a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it makes people uncomfortable too. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely. Um, so we've got about eight minutes remaining. Um, so we will talk a little bit about the IPCC report. Um, Rosie, do you want to start us off? I'm going to say I feel personally identified as a STEM student <laughs> in this discussion right now. Um, but yeah, so today there was another IPCC report released. Um, there's already been a motion in the House of Reps and the Senate this morning actually... Um, by the Greens calling on the government to acknowledge that, like, when the UN released this report, they were like, by the way, you should stop, like, building, uh, stop approving new coal, gas and oil projects. That is, um, for, for the listeners at home, um, our one listener, I'm sure, <laughs> um, Raiders just popped off to class. Um, but that was, in, in, at least in my experience, like, the number one observed thing. Mm -hmm. um, by the report, was, was they said like the number one thing we need to do is to stop um, new entrants into the market. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, and the government subsequently shut those down, I believe. Um, but yeah, so there's already been quite a swirling. There's also um, some commentary about it on the press club today. But yeah, basically a discussion about this report and kind of what it means. And I think a big part of it is also 
you know, they only do these like syndicated reports every once in a while. The next one is actually after 2030. So this IPCC reports quite frequently, but like this level of investigation, I guess, is rarer. I would love to see where we're at after <laughs> 2030. It's fucking terrifying. Yeah. And I think it's it's kind of like scientists shouting into a void once again. But I think they're being like, this is really the last time you have to hit this like under 1.5 degrees of warming number. And if yeah. we, when we come back around in 2030, like... If that's the next time that anyone talks about this, like, we're fucked, basically. I think a really interesting challenge is kind of articulating to people what the different temperatures actually mean. I found this, so, like, I personally struggle a lot with, um, not struggle a lot, struggle a bit with climate anxiety and in particular, like, um, apocalypses. I'm terrified mm. of zombies. Um, but I, I, I include this because I remember trying to do an intense amount of research to understand what a 1.5 degree world looked like, what a two degree world looked like. And then what like a, a three, I think it's three and a half is where we're currently looking at. That's our current trajectory. And it's really hard to understand what that looks like. I think most people agreed four degrees is like absolutely fucked like that it's like it's oh, hard it's yeah. like hard to imagine how humans would cope so i imagine like 3.5 degrees is probably not that much better yeah so they're saying that um they think that at the moment so we've not even hit 1.5 that 3 to 3 to 3.6 billion people sorry 3.3 to 3.6 billion live in places that are highly vulnerable to the changes um, which basically means that, yeah, if it continues in the current trajectory, like, their way of life would really substantially be changed, right? And, like, 3.6 billion people is, like, what, half the planet? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little under half the planet? Yeah. Um, there was an interesting port, uh, point also made about the the um, injustice of it. Sorry. Mm -hmm. It was something like the top 5 to 10% richest households produce around 40% of the overall emissions, Whereas the top bottom 10% account for like a commensurate number, like 10 or 15%. It's also, it's this question of adaptability, right? So like, obviously we're not going to go from like zero to tomorrow when the world began, war began. But there's this question of like, if you're, if you're one of those 3.3 billion people and you're in the first 10% of people whose like home becomes inhabitable, like the more resources you have, like capital resources, the more you can afford to adapt like and then also as well while we're on wealth the more you know when you consider that those people are in certain countries mm. you know pillaged and colonized countries like the pacific islands like africa you also consider that it's the wealthier countries have the ability to once again build a asylum seeker infrastructure and regime which purposefully keeps those people out which is another thing so you don't even i think people look at that and think like oh well you know like this is something i would look at you know i i am a very well-off person in the in the like the global scheme of things like yeah. everyone in Australia by definition is but you know I don't eat meat so I'm okay <laughs> but it's but I live in a country whose government has the money and the resources to build and like a program of asylum seeking that is is absolutely you know abhorrent and about it, it will be about keeping um climate refugees out anyway mm -hmm. that is my personal rant um <laughs> I was going to ask kind of what does it mean for us as as students kind of what's what's the next few years going to look like do you think is that does that mean more protests, I would hope not less protests. But no. what do you think it means for students at the moment? I think it, it does mean more protests. I think, you know, there's a, like a political, with climate change, there's a political question and a scientific question, right? And I think the scientific question's pretty much resolved. Oftentimes it is questions of like, um, what does it look like, right? Like what you're saying, like how do you quantify these degrees of warming for people to use in a political setting? Um, so I think... 
really the effect of these reports is like it creates a political moment, like it's talked about, it's tabled on the floor of parliament, but also it keeps adding more clarity, I guess, to this image that we're trying to use to progress a political point, right? Which is like the more reports that come out, the more information we have about like how many people are going to be affected, what actually needs to happen to slow down the warming. Like the more detail you have from a scientific source that you can use to supplement political action. Um, But yeah, I think it, it looks like more protests. It looks like, I guess, it's really readily accessible information that people can go access. Like you don't need a science degree to understand climate change. Um, mm. It's covered a lot in SCOM courses that they knew. I'd actually say I'm doing science and politics right now. We've talked a bit about it. Um, but I think like these IPCC reports, they are pretty like readable to the average person. I would recommend you go read them. Um, and they lay out kind of, yeah, the scientific impacts of what's going on and what will Happen. The starkest thing from the report and from some other research that I, I did for a course recently, which I find very interesting, is um, is that it's uh, Australia is just woefully off track. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, e- even under the most ambitious labour targets, we're not going to meet our commitments. But anyway, um, I was going to talk a little bit about how do people remain hopeful, but we're running out of time. <laughs> ironically. Um, So (laughs) I guess people can find that point on their own. Um, But there is a great book by Rebecca Solnoit called Hope in the Dark. Anyway, moving on to some of our weekly announcements. Um, Following on from what Rada said, we've got a lot of protests coming up. Mm -hmm. So um, the first is this Thursday, which is the 23rd? Yes, the 23rd of March um, against uh, Kelly Jean Kay. Now, I spelled her name wrong a lot on our live Twitter, but Kelly Jean Kay is a um, a TERF, so a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. I always forget what that actually means. But anyway, yeah. um, there's a counter-protest to her speaking tour that's running on in Australia. If you've been following the news, you might know it from Melbourne, um, where people rocked up to um, give a Nazi salute in solidarity of TERFs, <laughs> which is kind of how you know you are on the wrong side of history. Yeah, um, it's like... When, you're, when your compatriots lost world war ii you know the social rule 